Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. The Detroit Police Department issued an apology to members of the Detroit Native community after officers abruptly shut down a sugar bushing ceremony last week. In Arizona, Cafe Gojo is open again, and chefs are serving up wholesome and healing dishes in the White Mountain Apache Reservation. A new cookbook celebrates dishes from the tundra, and a buffalo herd is released in Texas. This is on our regular food show, The Menu on Native America Calling. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Megan Kamrick in for Antonia Gonzalez. Four more tribes are asking a judge to block restrictive new election laws ahead of the November midterms. It's part of a larger battle over voter access in Native communities. Bert Johnson with the Mountain West News Bureau reports. Montana passed laws to eliminate voter registration on Election Day and limit ballot collection. But tribal governments say that'll disproportionately impact Native voters, who often live far from the polls. Jacqueline de Leon is with the Native American Rights Fund, which represents the tribes. She says a judge blocked a similar Montana law because it violated the state constitution. And in Nevada, tribes successfully sued to expand voter access on their reservations. We'll continue to file lawsuits where Native Americans are being discriminated against. And we'll either force compliance or we'll hopefully spur a change. De Leon is a member of the Isleta Pueblo in New Mexico. She says some legislatures in western states are trying to make it harder to vote. A Utah bill aims to end mail balloting. In Arizona, some lawmakers want to get rid of drop boxes. For National Native News, I'm Burt Johnson. A couple has filed a lawsuit in Oklahoma challenging whether the state has the right to tax Native Americans in the wake of a landmark U.S. Supreme Court ruling in 2020. The Tulsa World reports Harold and Nellie Mishintubby are members of the Choctaw Nation. They're seeking a decision from a judge on whether the McGirt decision also includes civil matters like taxation. That decision by the Supreme Court found that the Muscogee Nation reservation had not been disestablished by Congress. That left its boundaries from the 1860s in place and meant the state of Oklahoma did not have jurisdiction to prosecute criminal cases on the reservation if the victim or perpetrator was a tribal member. A state court extended that decision to five other tribes, including the Choctaw Nation. The couple argues the decision extends to civil tax matters, and they also cite prior court decisions that found tribal citizens did not have to pay state taxes when they work and live on the reservation. A spokesperson for the State Tax Commission could not comment on the case. In New Mexico, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham signed two bills on Thursday at the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center in Albuquerque to address missing and murdered indigenous women and relatives. Source New Mexico reports the first bill will establish Missing in New Mexico Day, an annual event to bring families together with law enforcement and also connect them with resources in cases involving missing or murdered family members. The second bill the governor signed into law gives the attorney general's office authority to prosecute these cases and potentially create greater collaboration among police agencies. It specifies that the AG must hire one or more missing indigenous persons specialists. The law also calls for the attorney general's office to form a grant program that would distribute up to $1 million for tribes to develop training and criteria for creating a uniform reporting system for missing persons cases. 
The Navajo Nation is recognizing the life and legacy of Dorothy Bitsilli. The 93-year-old agriculture and food sovereignty advocate died Wednesday. In a written statement, Navajo President Jonathan Nez said Bitsilli demonstrated self-reliance, self-determination through her accomplishments, and showed compassion for her community of Tohatchi. In addition to her work for the Red Willow Farm Project, Bitsilli served for over 30 years as the Bureau of Indian Affairs Education Liaison. She was also the vice president of the Fort Defiance Agency Council on Aging and the Navajo Nation representative to the New Mexico Aging Advisory Council. She is survived by 10 children, 21 grandchildren, 41 great-grandchildren, and four great-great-grandchildren. For National Native News, I'm Megan Kamrick. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. There are now booster recommendations for all three available COVID-19 vaccines in the United States, and you may choose which booster shot you receive. More info at aaip.org or cdc.gov coronavirus who support this show. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling, and you are listening to The Menu, a monthly indigenous food show hosted by me, Andy Murphy. In this episode, we'll focus on Cafe Gojo in Arizona, where Chef Nephi Craig and his crew are enhancing the White Mountain Apache Community Food Fair and uplifting local and traditional ingredients from throughout Native America. Then we'll browse the pages of a new cookbook called Tundra to Table by the Bering Straits Native Corporation in Alaska. And after that, we'll check up on the growing buffalo herd at the Texas Tribal Buffalo Project. But first, I'd like to focus on a sugar bush ceremony put on by the Detroit Sugar Bush Project last Friday. It was shut down by Detroit police officers, and attendees tried explaining to the officers that they have permits and an agreement with the city. On Monday, the Detroit Police Department issued an apology for interrupting that ceremony. That statement reads, officers observed an expired MOU and no evidence of compliance with key components of the expired MOU, such as a fire permit and proof of insurance. Police Chief James E. White is quoted in the statement saying, we can always do better to address these types of incidents. We'll get more details about this incident, but you can add your voice too. Do you have Native food news to share with us this hour? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And joining us from northern Michigan is Robes. Rosebud Bear Schneider. She's an Anishinaabe farmer, food educator, and Detroit sugar bush organizer. She's from the um, Lacoudere Band of the Lake Superior Chippewa. Welcome to Native America Calling, Rosebud. Ani, bonjour. How are you? 
Doing pretty good. I'm glad you could join us. Um, so I just gave a couple of details about the uh, incident there in Detroit, and this was at a public park. Um, can we first start off with this sugar bush ceremony? What what does this uh, what did this ceremony look like? Sure. So um, this has been uh, an ongoing effort for the last four years, um, specifically with tending trees um, in that in Rouge Park, um, which is a, a park in um, the city of Detroit. Um, we had been planning and looking at the weather, and as you know, sugar bush season, um, you know, the time to, to tap maple trees um, in this area. The window is very short, especially now with climate change. Um, so what, you know, what we're looking for are really cold nights and um, that drop down below zero, and then, well, not below zero, but below freezing and then rise up again um, above freezing so that allows the the sap to flow um, so we have we planned for this week or last weekend to, to kick things off we brought in one of our um, our cultural um, and spiritual leaders to lead the ceremony um, and there was a, a group of us that had been organizing um, the community that had been doing that work um, for the last three years so Friday was the kickoff for that. Okay. And there was a group of, of how many in this park? There was about 20 of us, um, of, you know, age ranges all the way down from, I think, our youngest um, person was three years old. We had, you know, families out there. Um, there's, you know, about 20 of us. All of us um, have, you know, Detroit identify as uh, Detroit indigenous people um, from many, many backgrounds. But, you know, in that community, we all come together to do these things. And um, in that of itself is, is a ceremony <laughs> of mm -hmm. just us gathering. You know, this actually was like the first time I had, I'm originally from Detroit. Um, so I had traveled down and this was one of the first times I had come home and been a part of ceremony since COVID. So um, I don't think that had started until like just the other day. I'm like, that was the first time I'd been home to do stuff, something like that. And then we were met with police force. <laughs> mm. yeah. Um, we, yeah, we started about, um, you know, started hauling things into the bush about five o'clock and it was still daylight. Um, when the incident occurred, it was about eight o'clock and, um, you know, the park that we're at, there's a, there's police presence. Um, if, you, if you know the city and you know that park, then you know that the, the police are always around. And um, you know, looking back, like they had plenty of time to come come back there and talk to us. It was all of our cars were parked on the side of the road, and it's just a short walk into the woods. Um, so uh, you know, they didn't have to wait until <laughs> until till nightfall to come in with you know 14 cops. <laughs> Right. Well, uh, there was a helicopter above, right? I mean, I was I was watching uh, a bunch of the video that uh, folks were taking uh, while everything was happening, and there was, you know, a, a helicopter with their spotlight just all around there. Um, what? What? Um, tell me what happened. Like, um, from when you noticed, uh, you know, the cop cars to uh, when y'all were leaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, uh, again, about 8 o'clock. Um, we were almost through ceremony, you know. Anytime we harvest, there's, you know, we, we want to pay respects to those, um, to those beings for, for giving us their gifts. And 
start things off in a good way. So we were doing that, our making, you know, doing our responsibilities and um, almost through getting ready. I think we had broke for feast and <laughs> we noticed like, oh, there's some cubs, there's some lights over there. I, like, we were kind of joking, oh, somebody must be getting pulled over. We didn't think it was for us. At that point, you know, all of us were operating like, you know, we did have permits. We did. We do have the permission from the city to be out there. This is our our fourth year out there. This is not a new thing, right? Um, it wasn't until like three, four more cop cars, you know, showed up, and then we noticed there's a there. You know, we noticed air traffic, but at this point, the spotlight is on, and then they're circling us. And I even think that for me, it was like I I uh, was still in shock. So like you know, in disbelief a bit, they were there for us. Like, why, why are you here for us? We're, we're not doing anything wrong. So um, a, group of, a group of us went towards the road and um, to see what was going on, talked with the, with the police up there. But there were seven, about six, seven cop cars that had showed up, and half of them had went, started walking down into the, into the bush where the fire was at. And those officers had tactical gear on. The officers at the road had the regular, like, blue, regular uniform. Um, and so, you know, the the other organizer who had all the permits and, you know, the, pap- the proper paperwork was talking to the cops at the road. But unbeknownst to everything happen- happening up there, there was, you know, way more drama happening down at the fire. And those guys, those ta- those special ops officers basically told them, you need to pack up, put that fire out, and if you don't do it within two minutes, everyone's getting arrested. <laughs> um, you know, a, a few folks tried to, you know, hey, we have permits. Hey, we're allowed to do this. They didn't want to hear anything. <laughs> we tried to tell them, like, you know, you're violating our, you know, our sovereign, our sovereign rights, our treaty rights, our religious freedom act. They, they didn't want to hear anything about that. They, they actually on the, one of the TikTok videos, you can hear them, um, the officer saying back that our sovereignty isn't valid. Um, one of them also told me that I didn't belong here. <laughs> so, um, they, they weren't, they definitely weren't interested in keeping things peaceful. peaceful. Um, and I think the consensus down at the fire was that, <clears throat> excuse me, was that. They, you know, we didn't want to escalate anything more. There were there were children present, and um, we, you know, again, we weren't doing anything wrong. So, at that point, the decision was made to put that fire out and um, start packing up. Um, the whole incident probably lasted maybe like 45 minutes to an hour. It felt like it went on and on and on. But um, at some point, they were satisfied with what with what we were showing them and called, you know, called the other officers off and um little by little things started to to disperse and calm down but it was it was pretty scary pretty traumatizing for all of us involved and um especially when you know we're having those conversations about coming together as a community and and you know doing doing this work in spite of everything that's going on in the world and you know reclaiming these foodways and reclaiming this space and this in this city to you know to have to have a space to like practice our cultural ways and um and then that happens. <laughs> um I think all of us can can agree that it definitely it bonded us, you know, <laughs> trauma bonds you, but um it made us stronger. Like, you know, our our Detroit community is very strong and very resilient and 
um, I'm really, really proud of like the work that they've done and how they ha- how everyone has handled themselves thus, thus far. You know, yeah. we had we still had work to do. <laughs> we went back out Saturday and um, you know picked our picked up where we left off and debriefed and gave everybody a chance to to talk and we fed everybody and. Sunday we went back out and put taps out, and I think we tapped about 70 trees on, on Sunday. Um, and then the group, the group that's doing that's down there, that's local. Um, they're all, you know, communicating with each other and collecting buckets, and then we'll move on to boiling and making, you know, making syrup and sugar. Yeah. Yeah, that that um, that sounds really awesome. I mean, that all of this is happening within uh, the city of Detroit, and um, we're going to go to a break in just a bit here. And I want to ask you more about the De- the Detroit uh, Sugar Bush Project. But um, there was a uh, an apology, you know, on Facebook uh, from the Detroit Police Department. I mean, what what did you think about that? And um, do you feel like meeting with um, city leaders and community leaders, do you think that's going to, you know, smooth things over or what do you hope kind of comes out of, out of all of this? Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad that the apology was, uh, was put out there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it definitely shows that they know that they were in the wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, I think this opens up for a bigger conversation about communication within <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. So, so, so sorry, uh, Rosebud. We're going to go to a break just now. Um, we'll be back right after. Wisconsin is the latest state to push strict new voting laws, but native voting advocates all over the country are sounding the alarm over the drive to pass laws that disproportionately hinder native voters and other people of color. We'll get a look at what is being done to counter the trend and encourage Native voter participation on the next Native America Calling. The Association of American Indian Physicians and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention remind you there are now booster recommendations for all three available COVID-19 vaccines in the United States. You may choose which COVID-19 vaccine you receive as a booster shot. Getting the COVID-19 vaccination protects you, your family, and your community. More information at aaip.org or cdc.gov coronavirus who support this show.
Welcome back. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm your host, Andy Murphy, and this is The Menu, a monthly roundup of Native food news. Uh, right before we go on to our other uh, topics today, I want to continue with Rosebud Bear Schneider over in uh, northern Michigan. She's an Anishinaabe farmer, food educator, and Detroit Sugar Bush Air organizer. Um, we're continuing our discussion about the um, interruption to a sugar bush ceremony that happened last week. And um, Rosebud, could you um, continue your comment? I was asking about uh, what you think about the department, um, the Detroit Police Department's uh, apology and response to the incident uh, via Facebook. Yeah, um uh, yeah. Again, I um, I'm glad it, I'm glad an apology was was uh, was made. Um, mm-hmm. I I think that is the very first step. Um, <laughs> I think that there should be um, definitely a longer conversation about this, a face to face meeting um, about this type of about this issue in particular. I think that the response was so extreme. It didn't <laughs> it didn't need to be that way. Um, and again, like again, this opens up to a bigger issue of, you know, tribal citizens, native people, indigenous people getting in touch with, you know, reclaiming our cultural and life ways, living in a in an urban setting. How what does that look like? How do we do that? And when we, you know, work so hard to build these relationships with these systems that we have to work in. And we're still met with this type of force pushing back. Like, what do we do? How, how do we keep moving forward? You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. And and um. Tell me about the Detroit Sugar Bush Project. Um. Do you guys do this every year? Tap the trees in the city and then uh, make maple syrup, or? Mm-hmm. Yep. That's exactly hmm. what they're doing. Okay. <laughs> so this this effort was started. Um largely in part of um, the work Antonio Cosme is doing. Um, he is another Detroit organizer, um, community organizer down there in, in, in Detroit, and he's done a ton of work across the board, but um, he, you know, really, you know, you know, sparked that fire for us um, and, you know, then brought in all of us indigenous folks in, in the city that are interested in doing this and, it's it's been a um there's definitely you know we're definitely the movement happening in 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 Indian country around food sovereignty um and Detroit wants to be a part of that so um they they went and found some tree uh, a maple stand in Rouge Park and they've been tapping those trees um I think this year they did 70 um and every year they I think they add on a little bit more trees and um they you know the work started with talking with the community and talking with the grandmothers um, and, you know, get a, getting blessing, you know, having a blessing over, you know, about this project. So mm-hmm. um, all of this is done with super good intentions. And once they process that, that syrup, um, I, I believe their syrup, and then they cooked it down to sugar also, um, they gifted it back to, back to the elders and back to community members for, for free, which okay. is amazing. Yeah. 
All right. Well, Rosebud, thank you so much for joining us and uh, giving us some more details about this incident over in Detroit. And we'll be keeping an eye on it. Um, uh, the uh, um, the chief police chief, James E. White, he said he wanted to meet with uh, civil rights advocates and state and local elected officials and a senator and the native community. So um, we'll see what comes out of those meetings in the future. Um, so let's move on to our other topic that we have for today, or one of our other topics that we have for today. Um, we are talking about a couple of different food news um, in Native America, and you can join us too. Do you have, a, uh, is there a new restaurant, a Native restaurant that popped up in your area, or uh, a new Native food initiative in your area that you want to uh, tell us about? We are at one 800 996 62848. That's also 1 800 99 Native. You can join us um, also on social media. So, joining us from White River, Arizona, is Chef Nephi Craig. He's the Nutritional Recovery Program Coordinator for Cafe Gojo, which is part of the White Mountain Apache Tribe's Rainbow Treatment Center. He's White Mountain Apache. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Nephi. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right. So I've been keeping an eye on this one for the last couple of years now. Cafe Gojo is now open in White River. So uh, Ka um, Nephi, tell us about this journey to get the cafe open. Okay. Well, first off, uh, thanks for having me on. <laughs> and uh, Cafe Gojo is a, a project we've been working on for a few years, um, hitting a few uh, speed bumps along the way, but always staying committed to the wellness and our approach of our uh, to approach to the cafe and the wellness of our community as it relates to food and recovery. Uh, so we we launched the co the concept of Cafe Gojo in like 2016, late 2016, and we began the process of uh, vision casting and brainstorming and putting it together. And um, as many people that have um, built projects and constructed kitchens, you know, there's speed bumps speed bumps along the way. And we encountered those, but fortunately, as that happened, we were still able to offer our services, you see, because we're a Rainbow Treatment Center, and we're in the Nutritional Recovery Program. We're fortunate to be able to take all of the behavioral aspects of food and food sovereignty and combine them in a way that we see fit, see, in the way that we see fit to uh, create an approach to recovery. And so... Excuse me. And so in that process, we've um, held numerous uh, cooking demonstrations, hands-on lessons, uh, food, uh, food education in terms of native foods, food sovereignty, public health, and always pairing that with our recovery concepts. So about five years down the road, we're finally opened. We opened on October 26th last year and um, managing the pandemic and rolling with it to protect our staff and our community members, we shut down uh, for a short period of time after opening. And then we also uh, reopened again. So now we're back to back in business and, you know, excited and happy to be sharing this information with you all. 
Yeah, so the the grand re reopening <laughs> of sorts. Um, but I'm glad that to see you guys are finally open. I mean, you know, it's been uh, such a journey that uh, you guys have been on over there, and I think everybody in um, the native food food scene have been anticipating the opening of this. And definitely, I have to make sure to visit uh, you again in um, uh, White River this time at the actual cafe. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strongheart's Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by Strongheart's Native Helpline.
Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy, and you're listening to our monthly Native food show called The Menu. Um, We experienced a little bit of technical difficulty, but we are back, and I want to start things up again with Lisa over in Anchorage, Alaska. Lisa is the social media and communications coordinator for the Bering Straits Native Corporation, and I'd like her to help me talk about the um, Tundra to Table cookbook. Hi, Lisa. Are you there? I am here. All right. Thank Glad you so you much. Made it back. Yeah. Thank you so much for staying with us. So um, we've got, you know, uh, um, some short time here to talk about a couple of things. But uh, talk to me about this cookbook, Tundra to Table. Well, um, Bering Straits Native Corporation is um, owned by more than four or not 4,000, 8,000 shareholders who live in the Bering Straits region and rely on subsistence foods. Um, So this cookbook is their recipes. Um, It's recipes um, from the shareholders and the descendants. And um, it's a way that um, we can um, preserve our culture and our heritage um, through recording these um, recipes. And we have both... uh, traditional and modern recipes um and yeah it's 100 percent um from our shareholders and descendants and it's our first time doing this so it was a really really fun neat project yeah and i have to say that it is very nicely done um i saw recipes like hot crab dip and roast brants and tundra blueberry pie there's also octopus poke i mean and and of course that speaks to the some of those contemporary fusion foods i mean i guess you know poke is hawaiian and um you know you, you guys have octopus there up in the tundra i mean that's a really cool mix of indigenous foodways there. Um, but who is this uh, who is this cookbook for? Uh, the cookbook is for the shareholders and the descendants. Um, you know our 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 mission um, is to improve the quality of life of our people um, and pro- protect and preserve our culture and heritage. And so this is one way to do that. And so it's kind of a um, cookbook that is by the by by the people for the people you know it's 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 for for the descendants and um and the and the shareholders and um so they we've just asked them if if any if they're interested in the cookbook to send us a request and we'll send out a free um cookbook to BSNC shareholders and descendants but it's also we made the pdf available for everyone online um so it's um, the PDF is available for everyone who wants to um, check it out, download it, try some recipes, um, and yeah. Yeah, everything uh, everything looks pretty delicious here. And there's one whale recipe on there. It's um, pickled beluga, Leanne's pickled beluga. That'd be interesting to check out. Um, you know, uh, what, what, Lisa, what kind of stories are being told through these recipes and through this cookbook? Well, it's been fun. That's uh, one of the delightful things Um in the cookbook, and we also do a photo contest, is the little stories that people tell about their experience. Um, and some, 
you know, one of the ones that, I, you know, one of the recipes is for a dried apple pie, um, because that's something that, um, you know, rural communities had available was dried apples. Um, and so, it, you know, and you just, I hadn't ever seen anything for a dried apple pie. Another one was polenta cakes, because that's something that they ordered in bulk in rural Alaska. So they would have these huge bags of cornmeal. And so um, people came up with creative ways to use um, those recipes, um, you know, along with, you know, you see the, you know, traditional um, recipes on how to, um, you know, preserve salmon and, um, you know, other, other, way, other ways. But a lot of it speaks to the creativity of, um, you know, people living in remote um, Alaska, rural Alaska, and that, um, you know, creativity that comes from, like, this is what we have. We have, you know, we have whale, we have, you know, um, ptarmigan, we have, um, you know, berries, you know, octic or um, blueberries, you know, and, and then we have this big giant bag of cornmeal. So what are we going to do with this? So um, I think that's some of the fun is um, hearing about those stories about how how people, um, you know, live in rural Alaska and create um, food there. Yeah. Have you ever tried uh, some of these recipes? Um, yeah, some, some of them I have, like... Um, uh, I guess probably the thing I would have everyone start with that um, even my uh, fairly picky children like is the salmon dips. Um, and mm. that is um, probably the best best place to start. But yeah, a lot of these are recipes that um, I've eaten and enjoyed Um and there's a lot of new ones, though, that uh, I am interested in trying my, you know. But, yeah, some, some of them, my aunt, who's also a shareholder, submitted several recipes, um, you know. So mm -hmm. a lot of them are, are familiar. Yeah. You know, um, before the show, I was talking to you about just um, cookbooks, reading cookbooks. Uh, I have I have tons of cookbooks uh, back at home. I think I'm a, a collector of cookbooks. And uh, for me, the reason why I love cookbooks is, you know, those stories that you can see behind uh, behind some of these recipes. I mean, when you when when I'm reading a recipe and going through some of the instructions, I mean, it plays is like a like a cooking show or like a cooking movie a food movie in my head and I can imagine myself or maybe somebody else like doing all of these different movements in the kitchen and um, a, a counter full of ingredients and you know kind of imagining the smells coming from you know mixing it up raw to when it comes out of the oven or out of the skillet um, and then you know cookbooks are not just like recipes 
after recipe, some of them have like a, a large narrative behind them. They have, um, you know, a cultural history, whether that's native history or um, other kind of uh, cultural history. And it's really interesting to see um, how contemporary cookbook writers and recipe makers and chefs, you know, take all of this history and take all of these different ingredients and, and mix them with their own personal experiences or their own uh, family histories. And, um, you know, so, so that's the reason why I love to read cookbooks. It's not, you know, just to, to gather them and try to cook something from them. You know, there's really something more, um, something more substantial, I think, that you can get from reading a cookbook. Um, so, uh, Lisa, uh, you know, what would you what would you want, um, you know, maybe non-natives to learn if they decide to browse through this cookbook, Tundra to Table? Um, I think um, one one thing would be to to just to learn about the different types of foods that um that people eat that they haven't heard of, or like one of the fun things I, I, I you mentioned the pickled beluga recipe um, that I loved that um, the author Liam put in there was you know that um, you know how to make it not mushy, and it's just you know if you cook it too long it's mushy or, or whatever. Think little tips like that are just fun because these are things that you don't work with and you don't encounter and um, to know that, uh, you know, like any food, these traditional and native foods have, um, you know, this knowledge of how to, you know, um, cook them appropriately, I guess, you know, they have their own, own um, ways, ways to make them tasty. Yeah. And, um... and that knowledge is there. <laughs> Yeah. You mentioned uh, salmon, you know, salmon being sort of this introduction to food in Alaska. And I think that's a really good place to start. But um, how would you suggest like a newbie or an outsider like myself? How would you suggest we um, experience like muktuk for the first time? Pickled the way Leanne does it? <laughs> um, I, I think that would probably be a good a good way to a, a good way to start. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's one of those things that it would be a hard thing I think to unless you're here to and are traveling in rural Alaska um, to um, experience. But you know if you're if you're able to visit someone, um, just try what they have. It's all you know, this new, you know, try what's available. You know, if someone wants to share their food culture and share their food with you, that's a beautiful thing. Um, you know, that's, that's a powerful thing. So, um, I, I don't, I don't know if there would be a way to, to, to do that outside of Alaska, but if you were here and visiting and someone wanted to share, um, that's just like, you know, a unique experience, but it's also just, um, I don't know, a gift. It's a gift when someone mm -hmm. wants to share their food with you. Yeah, because um, whale, you know, it can't be sold. It's um, a subsistence um, item that, that uh, you know, really pretty much stays in the community. Um, I, read th I wrote this whole big piece for uh, Civil Eats, uh, where I'm the Indigenous Foodways fellow. I wrote a, a long piece about uh, wh uh, whale, um, 
culinary culture. And it was just so interesting to learn about the history of whaling, indigenous whaling communities all across the the country and in other countries as well. And, um, you know, that was a thing that I learned, like you have to be you, you, uh, in, in many places, uh, I think except two countries, you can't purchase a uh, whale or, you know, any of those parts. Um, it's only something that indigenous families, um, you know, maybe you can gift it and then that's how maybe outsiders would have access to it. Um, but Lisa, I have one more question here. Uh, what ways can people who are not in Alaska utilize the cookbook if they don't have access to all of these uh, ingredients? Well, I, I think um, I personally love substitutions and a lot of these recipes are ripe for substitutions. Um, you know, even in the in the cranberry recipe, um, one of the cranberry recipes, I think it was the one that my aunt submitted, she says, you know, what to do if you ha- only have commercial cranberries. Because commercial cranberries, I don't know if you've seen commercial cranberries versus wild com- cranberries, but commercial ha- cranberries are huge. Um, so, you know, if you cut the volume in half. Um, but so to use um, the ingredients that you have in your community, use your, your you know, you, you might have a whitefish, you know, um, that's uh, indigenous to your community, um, you're native to your community. Um, you might have, you know, there's a, a ptarmigan recipe. Um, maybe you have grouse. I'm not sure, like, you know, what, what um little bird, but you can also use things like, you know, Cornish game hens or chickens or, or whatever and, and try that. But, um, you know, every, every, every place has their, their food or their, you know, items. So, yeah. All right. Well, um, Lisa, thank you so much for joining the show today. So we've reached the end of the hour. I'd like to say thank you to the rest of our guests. We briefly heard from Nephi Craig um, and uh, Rosebud Bear Schneider up in Michigan. Thank you so much. Um, And just before we sign off, I want to say good luck to a couple of folks in native food country who were who are the semifinals for the James Beard Foundation Restaurant and Chef Awards. That's a good luck to Crystal Wapipa from Wapipa's Kitchen for Best Emerging Chef, Awanmi in Minneapolis by the Sioux Chef for Best New Restaurant, and Sean Sherman of the Sioux Chef for Best Chef in the Midwest. Good luck. And I'm Andy Murphy. We're starting it all over again next week, so join us. Support by Roswell Park, who know tribal communities face persistent challenges in health equity, such as cancer and higher death rates. The Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center is dedicated to advancing cancer research that will lead to translatable science, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous populations worldwide. Are you at high risk for cancer? A no-charge online assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assessme. Sha'ilahi <laughs> 
healthcare.gov, 11-800-318-2596. He gets an also Medicare, a la Medicaid, una dosca, in. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Quantic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.